Jesus' name, amen. Well, please stand and we'll read Acts 17 together. Our passage this morning will be Acts 17, verses 16 through 34. We'll kind of talk through most of it, but our focus will be kind of the latter half, verses 22 through 34. It's a dear passage to me. I'm sure most of you are familiar with it. and It's really fitting, I think. I mean, this was selected. I selected it months ago when I volunteered to preach this day, and just knowing last Sunday was Global Mission Sunday, and yesterday we had some evangelism, it's just fitting and a sweet gift, I think, to be in this passage this morning. So let's read Acts 17. I'll read if you follow along, starting in verse 16. Now, while, while Paul was sitting with them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogues with the Jews and the devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, What does this babbler wish to say? Others said, He seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities, because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know this new teaching, what you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God, and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. And yet he is actually not far from each of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art or the imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, But now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went from their midst, but some joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysus, Ericapite and a woman named Marius and others with them. This is the word of the Lord. Please have a seat. Well, again, it's a joy to be with you this morning. I get the privilege to Ryan gives us his vacation request early on and get months to prepare and, and plan, and, and so I'm excited to be able to share with you this morning a text that, again, I, I really love, and 
always underlined in my Bible. I want to start by just a couple stories to help open the text up. <clears throat> Nearly every day at work on my way to the bathroom, a coworker asked me, what do you know? Now, this question comes out of nowhere because I work on the opposite side of the building than this man, so we have no context to the question. So I usually reply, I know stuff. Now, I can promise you that what I know probably doesn't matter to my coworker. Um, he's probably making small talk, or maybe he's after something specific. If I were to share with him my most recent Bible study or something my kids, you know, and I did, or the last golf round I shot, I don't think he's looking for those things. What my coworker cares about all depends on what he's looking for. Here's my point. We all have knowledge, but what matters is what kind of knowledge we have and the context of what's being discussed. Now, again, when my coworker asked me that, I don't think he's looking for anything, which I think is telling to our text here. Here's another example. This is what I've learned as, as I'm 40 now, that I need to be careful when I'm sitting down in front of my computer with a blank Microsoft Word document. Because as soon as I start putting black letters on the document, I feel like I've made progress in my, in my work. Whatever task I'm working on, whether it's a Bible study or something for work or something for my kids, as soon as there are black letters on the white page, I feel like, I'm like I've accomplished something. Now, I may have fallen asleep and just pushed random letters, but once there are more black letters than white, I feel like I'm completed. I've completed something. This could be a Sunday school lesson. This could just be random letters. It doesn't make sense to anybody, but again, these are things that I've learned. A white page, I've done nothing, and a black page, I've done something. So both the telling of my bathroom travels and the challenge of my Microsoft adventures, I think, help open up our passage in Acts 17 when we read a verse like 21 that says this. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Whether we are confessing what we know or starting a project, nothing really matters unless what we're working on is of value. You can say that when it comes to spiritual things, nothing really matters unless it's grounded in truth. For the Athenians, they were not really looking for truth, but for just new information. <clears throat> so while Paul was waiting, Paul was waiting for his fellow workers in the faith, his spirit was provoked by what he saw in Athens. Our text says in verse 16 that he saw the city was full of idols and that he reasoned in the synagogues with the Jews, the devout persons, and then went into the marketplace. This is telling us that he was most likely talking to religious people and then common folks. He was also conversing with some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. Paul was busy while he was waiting for Silas and Timothy to return to him, and that's the first part of Acts 15. Our text says that Paul reasoned in verse 17. Now, this word occurs about 10 times in the book of Acts, most of which are in the latter part of Acts, which I think helps us understand our passage. This word can be translated reasoned like it is in our passage. It can also be translated disputed, talked, or argued. So let's not miss that Paul was not having a nice conversation over a cup of coffee. This is not a gentle conversation. This was intense. There was yelling. 
people were interrupted. Paul was mocked by what he was saying. And yet, through it all, by the grace of God, some believed and were saved. Paul sees the intellect and the curiosity of the people in this place, and he uses their own objects of worship to engage them on who God is. When I read this passage, I did not go to college, but I think of a college campus, right, where there's lots of debate and discussion and people want to learn. I think of a setting like that, where discussion and dialogue is welcome, but is this for the pursuit of gaining knowledge or to find truth? Do the men of the Areopagus want to know the triune God? Does this intellectual, religious conversation make them feel good? Something that suits their own desires and itching ears? Are they searching for truth or just searching for some vague new knowledge? Let us pull some language from our pastors to help answer these questions. They call Paul a babbler in verse 18, which is a great definition. Listen to this. This is one who pecks at ideas like a chicken pecks at seeds and then spouts them off without fully understanding them. That's what a babbler is. Now, they call this not because Paul doesn't understand what he is saying, but because they don't understand what he is saying. The end of verse 18 tells us that Paul was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. But this was a new teaching for they say that Paul brought some strange things to their ears and that some wish to know more about what these things mean. This all sounds good, yet verse 21 is coming and tells us that all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So again, I think in my blank Microsoft Word document, I can feel like I'm making progress as long as there's random black on the page. Even though the page may be of no substance, I feel like I'm making progress. So too, the Athenians may not care what they're learning as long as it's something new, which I think we have to say is dangerous. Paul most likely has an idea of their desire for knowledge, and then our text, <coughs> our text tells us that he perceives that they are very religious. For he observed their objects of worship you can see that the people wanted to worship something. They literally had an altar that said, to the unknown God. There was a desire there for knowledge and maybe for some more than that. I think this is telling. These people wanted to learn and they wanted to worship and possibly did not care what they were worshiping. <clears throat> what we have to see is that the important thing was they wanted to worship and place their heart on something but what's more important is what we're placing our heart and desires on and what we're worshiping. So we all know the people that worship this way, right? People that worship themselves. People that worship their bodies. People that worship and give their time to their hobbies. These are all things they place before the God of heaven and earth. Maybe it's the family who lives and dies at the sports field. We all, these people all put their thing in the place of God so that they can worship their unknown God. Paul sees the men of Athens and he wants to make their unknown God known so that they can worship properly. Paul does not get worried if these men are elect. He does not try to convince them with solid arguments. He does not water down the gospel. Nor does he bring out the latest article on how science proves the existence of God. Paul's agenda 
was to teach who God is and what God has done. For Paul knows that men should be seeking God, and as the text says, that God's actually not far from anyone. For as the text says in verse 28, in him we live and move and have our being, and that even as their own poets have said, they are the offspring of God. You see, man is created in God's image, even unbelievers. We know that, right? Man, mankind is created in the image of God. We are called to image God, and we do image God at some level. Genesis 1.27 says this, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Look again at the, at the phrase in the middle of verse 27. They should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. The ESV Study Bible has a, a, a description of this. So this implies a kind of groping around in the darkness without really knowing how to find God, though they hoped they would. Paul shows up to help them find God. <clears throat> Although he comes to do it his way, moreover God's way, let's not get sidetracked on how we can engage people or the best way to convince someone someone but to use Paul's example focusing on who God is what scripture says and now let's look to this and what Paul has to say we met yesterday I think I mentioned this we went out to the neighborhood and as we were praying beforehand there was a conversation that, that sparked up that said man I I don't know that I can say things I think Moser gave us an example of, of what he says and someone said I don't know that I can say it that well and that's fine right it's not how we say these things but it's what we're saying that matters and that's a, good, that's a good thing. That's good news. So the first truth that we were told on what Paul was preaching was Jesus and the resurrection. Everything else really flows from this initial statement. Paul was focusing on the gospel, which is the good news of what Jesus has done. This was for the men of Athens, a new and strange teaching, which was at first accepted. But let's not miss it was accepted because it was new, it was good information, but because it was new information. As we close a little bit later, we'll see that some mocked at this teaching, that some wanted to learn more, and that, praise God, some believed in the message that Paul had to share. And let's not look to Paul as he did something wrong here. Not everybody believed what he had to say. Some mocked, some wanted to keep hearing it, and some believed. There's a, a trailer out of a movie. I haven't seen it, but it's called Don't Look Up. And the storyline looks to be where there's a, a mediate or meteor coming to hit the earth. And so the government officials get together and they call experts in to, to see if this is really going to happen. So the experts meet together. There's a few of them, I think, and they agree. Yeah, the meteor, the meteor's coming. So they report their finding back, and no one believes them. The government says, no, it can't be. The newscast said, no, it can't be. They get made fun of. I don't know how the story ends. I haven't seen it. But my assumption is, if no one corrects the meteor, it's going to hit the earth, whether people believe it or not. Even more so with Christ, he is the way to salvation. He is our mediator between God and man, even if some don't believe that he is. Remember Noah and his years building the ark. 
for years he would have been ridiculed and mocked for what he did until the rain came, right? Paul's message was Jesus Christ and him crucified. And what we see him doing with the men of Athens is starting where the gospel starts, and that is with who God is. If we don't start with this as our foundation, the gospel foundation will crumble. As I count, there's 12 things that Paul has to say here in verses 12 through 22 through 31. We're going to walk through this so we don't miss the message that Paul thought was important to share then, which is still important to share today. As we begin, it's important to see what Paul prompted Paul's message again, which was an altar to the unknown God. If we look back to the beginning of Acts 17, kind of before what we read, it's, there's a few statements to say this. Now when they had passed through the Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, on three Sabbath days. He reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for Christ to suffer and rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. So that's some of the background before our text. Then verses 10 and 11. The brothers immediately immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they heard, they went to the Jewish synagogue. When the Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica, they received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So as we open our text here and go through what Paul has to say, let's realize he's on his missionary journey, right? He's been engaging people. What just happened was a really good, encouraging thing. And then he comes to the men of Athens. So at one level, Paul was prepared for this. Yet, the results were not 100%. Not every person who heard these words were saved, right? Paul starts with God being the creator. Verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it. God being the creator and man being the creation, where we have to start as we look to see God being the authority, which is where submission starts. Years ago, when Brent and I led a, a Sunday evening discipleship group at our last church, I remember telling the students, um, it didn't really matter whether you believed in creation or evolution. That only, what only mattered was the gospel. It wasn't very long until I realized that's not accurate, right? Creation is part of the gospel. Without believing that God's the creator, then, then there's, no, there's no submission to him, right? We have to start with God being the creator. God is the creator and sustainer of everyone and everything. Him being the creator gives him the authority over every man, woman, and child on the earth. He created us, and he is king over us. As his created beings, we are to look to see what he wants out of us. Much like a child playing with G.I. Joes tells each G.I. Joe where to stand and what to do, even more so it's good for God to tell us what to do and where to go and where to stand. This brings us to our next statement in verse 24, on how God is the Lord of heaven and earth. God created and God governs all of creation. He did not just create all that we know and then walk away, leaving things up to us. No, he has foreordained all things. He has commands that we are to follow He is Lord, he is king, he's intimately involved in each and every atom. He counts every hair on every head. He knows every grain of sand. 
He is sovereignly involved with every event from the first day of creation till the last. Nothing surprises God. Nothing thwarts his will. He is Lord in heaven and on earth. We told a guy yesterday that Ryan Phillips and I were talking to, he looked like he was really considering what, what we were having to say. And uh, it seemed to be, my, my perception was there was some sin in his life that he didn't think, you know, maybe was forgivable. And God knows all of our sins, right? Nothing surprises the Lord. Every sin ever committed is, can be forgiven by the Lord. Psalm 103 says this, The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. The next truth that Paul shares is that God is not like us. Paul states that God does not live in temples made by man. And, and this probably seems obvious to us, but think of the contrast to the people of the day. Their God, their God, little g, did live in temples built by man, right? We can think of the Parthenon, which was a magnificent temple to the god of Athena in Athens. It had 17 columns on one side and eight on the other. It was a massive structure. This is where they would go to worship. All they knew of the temple was that it housed the god of Athena. If God did not dwell in a temple, then how did they worship him? Paul's point is that you don't worship the true and living God as you do false gods. And in fact, that leads to our next truth about God being, about God Almighty. Verse 25, speaking of God, says this, Nor is God served by human hands as though he needed anything. God does not gain from his creation. He does not peop need people to worship him. He is God. He is holy. He is worthy even if none of his creation were to bow down. God does not change by our worship or any lack of worship. God is no more or less God if all the world were to bow the knee or if none would bow the knee. God's word tells us that every beast of the forest is his, even the cattle on a thousand hills. All that moves in the field is the Lord's. These things are not God's because man gave them to him, but because God created them. Here, Colossians chapter 1. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. God does not need man, but man certainly needs God. The next truth in our passage hang on God being creator again. First, we learn that God gives all mankind life and breath and everything. This is true for those that believe in God and those who do not believe in God. God is the giver of life, period. It is in and through the triune God that anyone and anything exists. To God, all glory is due and all life and breath comes from him. This is initial life and sustaining life, for the word of God we just read says that in Christ all things are held together. And that he upholds the universe by the word of his power. We were given physical life, and we are given sustaining life by God daily. Even James tells us, every good and every perfect gift is from above. So Paul's building on all these truths 
as he's leading to call them to repentance. From all that we have to all that we are, we are to thank the Lord and give him glory. For man to boast in who he is, outside of the triune God, is like the little child that brings his friends home and says, look at my house with all my stuff. It's kind of not his stuff, right? The next three truths are tied together and are found starting in verse 26, which states, And he made one man from every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. These truths go back to God as creator and sustainer of everyone and everything. All nations and all men are traced back to the one man, which is Adam. As we learn in Genesis 1, we all come from him. Our sin does as well. God determined allotted periods and God determined boundaries for their dwelling places, both indicating God's sovereignty over the histories of the nations. The next verse in our passage we'll spend some time on a little bit later <coughs> about God being sovereign says this, that men should seek him and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. It's an interesting statement in verse 27. All that said about God is leading to the fact that men should be seeking God. That's, our, that's, our, that's what we're due, right? We are to seek God, our creator. What our text hasn't said is that this is the most satisfying pursuit man can do, which is for the creature to have a restored relationship with the creator. I remember before we had children, I, I wasn't really around kids before we had Janella and didn't, I mean, I understood why kids were important, but I didn't, didn't have that desire necessarily. My wife convinced me, and, and we have two kids, and the joy of having kids, you can't experience until you have kids, right? So too with Christ, you don't know the joy that Christ brings until you come to know him. The next truths we learn in our passage are heading in, in that direction and are quoted from familiar poets of the men in Athens. Verse 28 says, In him we live and move and have our being. And the second quote says, For we are indeed his offspring. These two quotes are from pagan Greek writers. Paul is using their own trusted sources to drive home the point of who God is. It's the God of Scripture that we live and that we move and that we, who we, are, that we are who we are. It's not some generic God who gives us these things. The triune God is not limited in power, but is Lord over all. He is the God of Scripture. He's the God of heaven and earth. He's even in control of the weather, both every action, good and bad. He knows the number of our hairs, of both his followers and his enemies. He knows and has written the end from the beginning. Paul finds statements about their false gods and applies it to the God of Scripture as a way to engage them. Our text continues on in verse 29 and says that if we are God's offspring— and we believe, in, if we believe in verse what 28 says, we ought not to think of the divine being as gold, to be like gold or silver or stone, or an image formed by the art or the imagination of men. If we are God's offspring, and we are not made with silver or stone, then why would we worship gods that are? That's not who God is. But Paul is saying while standing at the objects of their worship, is that God Almighty was not a formed image from man, but that man is a formed image from God. And that God Almighty is the one who is to be worshipped. 
Now, after all that Paul preached on who God is, he doesn't leave them to contemplate these truths to see if they believe on their own terms. But he then commands them, as God does, that they are to repent and to believe in who God is. Here, verse 30. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. These truths have led them back to God. They are to repent of their sin and place their faith in Christ. And finally, verse 27 again says that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way to him and find him, and that God is actually not far from any of them. It's now time for these men to repent. Paul taught them who God was and who they are. He pulled truths from their own people, and he shows them what's next, which is to turn to the living God. They are to turn from their sin, confess it for what it is, and follow the God of heaven and earth. They are to do this because God is the creator and judgment is coming. Look at verse 31. He, God, has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man he has appointed with assurance by raising him from the dead. Let's go back to look at the quote in verse 27. The statement, um, the, the verse says, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him. And the ESV Study Bible again says this, this implies a kind of groping around in the darkness without really knowing how to find God. Before Christ, all men are lost and without him in utter darkness. This picture of groping around in the darkness is a perfect picture that the Bible supports. Men without the light of Christ are said to be in darkness, and they cannot see the light of life. When God saves a person, the scales from their eyes fall off, and they can see unlike they've seen before. They can truly see for the first time. What was normal to them, they now see as darkness and sin. What was foreign to them, they now see as glorious. Men without Christ are lost in darkness, even though they don't know it. Scripture says that these unbelievers are blind, that they're deaf, that they're dumb. And yet, the grace of the gospel says they are not far from repentance. Our text says that God is actually not far from each of us. For an unbeliever to come to the saving knowledge of God, all that has to happen is for God to first do a work. From the best of sinners to the worst of sinners, God is right behind them waiting for their repentance. On one level, it does not matter how much sin a person has committed. God is not willing that any should perish, but all should come to saving faith. This does not minimize sin, for each and every sin committed against a holy God is worthy of eternal damnation. This is because God is perfectly holy in all his ways, and he demands perfection. But God is also right there waiting for any and every person to repent and will gladly take them in his arms regardless of their sin. This is grace. It is not justice. It is not fair. But it's real. It's thick, merciful grace for God to even save the best of sinners. So what's the response with the men of Athens? After the qualified apostle Paul says all the right things, ties the gospel in perfectly, even uses their own poets to engage them with scripture, 
What's the result? Well, of course, every man, woman, and child repents and is saved, right? Someone got to say no. No, I see you guys here. No. No. Just like we experience in our non-perfect efforts of evangelism, some make fun of Paul, some ask to hear more, and some joined him and believed. This should bring us unfading hope and assurance in our efforts at evangelism. What we are so afraid of in evangelism is the same thing Paul experienced 2,000 years ago. Let us trust in the words of Scripture and from the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. In the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, but it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For, for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God, this is why the Apostle Paul can say, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. As we went out yesterday, when I went out last time, I think I was with Mosier or Holden, and we came across this New Age guy, and he was saying stuff I'd never heard of. I did not know what to say. And that's why Paul would say, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Me trying to convince the New Age guy of his weird beliefs will not save him. What will save him? Christ, right? The message of the gospel. Unregenerate man will not accept our message. They will not respect it. It's as goofy as the made-up animal Napoleon Dynamite called a liger. That's how goofy the gospel is. It's like a liger. But the foolish cross is true, Amen. Just as Paul was steadfast in his message and trusted what God gave him, so too are we to trust in God's gospel and share it with those around us. This is our only hope. This is their only hope. The message of the cross is the power of God to salvation. The message of the cross is the only thing that we have worthy of sharing with the world. May we, with the same conviction and the heart of Paul, by the power of the Spirit, engage our men of Athens today. And we do this all in our own way. It doesn't have to be door-to-door. -door. This can be with family, with relatives, with co-workers, with neighbors. You have to determine how you do that. And we want to provide some opportunities at church to do that with. We'd love for you to be there. This can also happen, though, in your own life, in your own neighborhood. Let us not forget that just because we share the gospel with a person one time does not mean God's not going to use that as a seed in their heart later on to be watered. For the Apostle Paul himself said, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. We all know people, maybe even ourselves, who came to the Lord not the first time we heard the gospel, but the hundredth time, right? I myself grew up in church, and I'm sure I heard the gospel many, many times. I know that I did. But it wasn't until my, my early 30s when I came to faith. But I really believe that those messages were building a foundation that the Lord built on later on. I think it's also important that we understand the order of salvation as we consider these things. Now, this doesn't, you don't have to fully get all this stuff for the Lord to use you.
but I think it can give us steadfastness in knowing how God works. Again, every person is born into sin and is lost. They're without hope and destined for hell. This is not because God is mean and wants to send people to hell, but because mankind has sinned and is born this way. Then every child who is born proves their nature by sinning. What's the first thing kids do when they're born? They cry, right? <laughs> you literally save them from the mother's room and they start crying. That's the first thing they do. And this continues on until death. We continue to sin more and more. We constantly do those things that we know are wrong, and we struggle to do those things that we know are right. We are without Christ, lost, dead, blind, and deaf when it comes to knowing, loving, and desiring God. God in his grace calls every person who comes to know him first by regenerating them, giving them a new heart, before any act of the sinner is done. This miraculous work happens when the gospel is heard and God moves in the heart of the sinner. And this is all foreordained before the foundation of the world. After the new heart is set in place, then the person can act on faith and receive Christ through repentance and belief. This is crucial to remember because as we approach an unbeliever, we do not know what God's doing behind the scenes. God may have just brought the person in front of us to new life, and they're ready to repent and believe. Maybe the person in front of us has a hatred for God. Our job is not to discern these things, but to share the message that we were given. For God's word says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. As we conclude our time, it's important to remember just a few more things. We need to keep the gospel central in all that we do, especially our evangelism. Being nice to people and serving them, answering questions and praying for them are all good and godly things that we should be doing. But when it comes to evangelism, what's commanded is that we share the message. So you must and I must and we must speak the message of Christ. We need to remember that God is even God and the gospel is even the gospel and it has power even if no one believes it. He is on his throne regardless of what his creation does. He is not moved, nor is he changed by his creation. Our great God is sovereign over the hearts of man. You can read a phrase in verse 32 that says this. This, to me, is either encouraging or frightening. The phrase says, we will hear you again about this. So you're talking to somebody, and they say, we kind of want to learn more. They're not making commitment. They don't hate you. They just They might want to learn more about this. We do want to work through the message of the gospel slowly. We want to make sure we're being clear. But there does come a day when it will be the last chance for an unbeliever to repent. Let us be wise in our evangelism, realizing the day of judgment is coming. An unbeliever, know that you will bow the knee to the God of heaven and earth, whether before the day of judgment where you submit to God or after when you'll be judged by him. Sinner, today is the day of your salvation. Lastly, some will believe in the same message of the gospel and some will not. This should lead us to prayer and to action. Church, God will use the words that come out of your mouth not because you said just the right thing or because your timing was perfect or because you answered all the right questions. 
God works through the message he gave us to share, and this has the power to save. Let's pray for God's help. Father, we thank you for this time today, opening up your word and learning from Acts 17. May we see and learn and be encouraged by what we learn from the Apostle Paul and even more so by the message that he shared. May we trust and <clears throat> may we trust and speak the message of Christ and him crucified. Lord, and help us understand that you have elected people to be saved, and this work was done well before we were even born. Give us a heart like the Apostle Paul and use us in similar ways. We pray that we would not be discouraged in our evangelism efforts, but be encouraged by how you equip and empower us. We continue to pray that you would increase our efforts in this church body. We pray that you would use us to bring some to saving faith. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Earlier I mentioned